You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7pm. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Dr. Ian Anthony, Director of the European Security Programme at Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Political Periscope Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. There has not been a lot of uh, peace lately. That's true. Um, the war in Ukraine is not just a tragedy, but it's reshaping the entire European security order. Um, and we have no way of predicting exactly when the situation will stabilize or what the outcome will be. But we can say that it's a, a transition uh, moment for Europe. But we can uh, find uh, reasons or, um, well, not maybe reasons, but um, why this war happened in the first place. Um, well, of course, the the short answer to that is because Russia decided um, to launch an aggression against Ukraine. This is the short answer. Um, we can go back many years, uh, and people are doing that in terms of mistakes that were made or problems that were not addressed. But there is nothing in that history which would justify what happened on 24th of February. And the long answer for the war? We don't have time, but people usually go back to the end of the Cold War, um, the immediate post-Cold War conditions for European integration, uh, Russia's disappointment that some of its um, considered needs were not met, etc., etc. But as I say, there's nothing in that story that justifies aggression against a neighbor. Will we ever achieve peace in the world? There's no answer to this question. Yeah, I know it was a bit of a naive question, but I, I thought it could be maybe a provoking. Uh, so another provoking question. Is Russia a terrorist state? Uh, well, that's a determination that would be made by different governments. Um, as I'm sure you know, in the United States, there's a very active discussion of this right now. Um, the Congress has a view on it. They believe that Russia should be designated because of its actions, um, particularly the attacks on civilians in Ukraine. Um, and there is pressure on the administration to move in that direction. But this is a question which, of course, is decided by governments. And from scientific point of view, can we designate uh, what makes a state a terrorist? State? Well, this is laid down in the legislation, um, and certainly attacks on civilians would be an important part of that. The important thing is probably the consequence of the designation. Um, the designation, if it happens, would lift certain sovereign immunities which Russia has as a state um, and would open the way, for example, for Ukrainian citizens to make civil legal claims against Russian assets frozen outside the country. Um, so the legal implications could be far-reaching uh, and potentially important. Besides uh, Russia and besides the obvious uh, ongoing war, what's the biggest threat for peace and security in Europe and in the world? Well, the war is the overwhelming um, priority in, in Europe, uh, not only because of the tragedy unfolding in Ukraine itself, but because of the potential risks that the fighting will escalate, um, perhaps draw in other countries. This is not likely, but it's not excluded. Um, the risk that inside the country, particularly if Russia seems to be losing, uh, Russia would choose to escalate with the use of new types of weapons. Um, so the war in Ukraine is the driving 
um, central factor in European insecurity. What new weapons? What kind of weapons can Russia use? What kind of weapons does Russia possess uh, right now? Well, we know that Russia is one of the countries that has uh, extensive nuclear weapons arsenal. Russia has the biggest nuclear weapons arsenal in the world. Russia looks at the use of nuclear weapons in a different way from Western countries. Uh, so the potential for escalation to the use of a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, as I say, it's not likely, but it's not excluded. Russia destroyed its chemical weapons program um, after the Chemical Weapons Convention came into force. Uh, but we've seen the use of specialized chemical materials in a limited way for targeted assassinations, which suggests that Russia still has a certain chemical capability, which is undeclared. Um, and Russia has never explained how it came into compliance with the Biological Weapons Convention, with which it was in egregious non-compliance for several decades. And Russia doesn't let other partners of conventions uh, control uh, their arsenal. Uh, that's true. Um, there haven't been, for example, inspections carried out uh, beyond the normal inspections in connection with stockpile destruction in the framework of the Chemical Weapons Convention. Um, there are uh, verification methods associated with strategic nuclear weapons, but there is no legal framework for controlling non-strategic nuclear weapons. So here there are no comparable inspection or verification um, regimes. And the Biological Weapons Convention has never had a verification system. Um, creating that is something that's long overdue and that should have been done many years ago. But there is no verification system associated with the Biological Weapons Convention. The Russian nuclear arsenal is uh, quite old. Are we sure that it's usable? Well, one thing we can say is that Russia hasn't carried out a nuclear test for a long time. This is true. But of course, Russia carried out many nuclear tests at the time of the Soviet Union. So they have all of the knowledge and data that they would need to make sure that their stockpile is in working order. Um, so we have no reason to believe that it's not functioning. And does Russia have a triad to carry uh, nuclear weapons? Yes, absolutely. There is a land-based component. There are also air-launched missiles, um, as well as gravity bombs. Um, and also missiles that are launched from submarines and ships, which are nuclear capable. So yes, Russia has an extensive set of delivery systems. There is one scenario, I'm not sure how probable, but we cannot exclude it, that Russia will collapse, and uh, it will collapse in some new states, smaller states. Uh, will it be dangerous or will it be beneficent for security? I'm not sure that the evidence for this collapse scenario is very strong. There appears to be relatively little domestic opposition which is organized in, in Russia, and that's not by accident. Uh, President Putin has eliminated the domestic sources of opposition, and there's no obvious mobilizing point for a political opposition, so I'm not sure this collapse scenario is really very likely. Um, what we do see is some interesting signs of changes in the thinking of some of the post-Soviet states, like Kazakhstan, for example, um, about how closely they want to be tied to Russia. This is perhaps a distancing between Russia and other post-Soviet states. It's perhaps more likely than this collapse scenario. So what scenario do you see to provide peace in uh, Europe and uh, in the world? Well, at the moment, on the Western side, um, the conversation is more about how to make sure that the war is terminated on conditions which are acceptable to Ukraine. This is seen from a Western point of view as the pathway to some stability. Um, that you, whatever happens in terms of the outcome must be acceptable to Ukraine. And in the long term, many experts recommend that uh, if Russia stays there in this form, 
uh, it's just pushing the threat in the time. Well, of course, Russia is going to stay there. Russia is not going to disappear, and and we will have to find a way of living together um, in this geographical space. Um, but probably we're moving back to a situation where the lowest common denominator is some sort of framework to avoid open um, large-scale warfare. And that may be the limit of what we can achieve in the foreseeable future. Um, there's very little evidence that there is an appetite for serious diplomatic engagement, either on the Russian side or on the Western side. So we'll get back to bipolar, um, bipolar um, order of the world? Um, I think when you lift it to the level of the world, um, there are other factors which are more important, uh, particularly, of course, the future of relations with China. Um, you know, there is this expression which you hear more often now that um, Russia is a thunderstorm, but China is climate change. Um, so probably in terms of driving the world order, relationships with China are more significant than relationships with Russia. So do you think that uh, China will finally reach for Taiwan? Uh, well, China's made it very clear that at some point Taiwan must be reintegrated as part of, uh, of, of China's um, political body, so to speak. So. Uh, at some point, we know that this is coming. And what's the role uh, for Europe in relations with China? We've seen you know, Baltic states uh, retrieving uh, themselves from from the um, 17 plus one or 16 plus one uh, after Lithuania left uh, uh, format of cooperation with China. The Central Europe is maybe a bit less interested than it was before. Um, What's the role for Europe? Well, you can see a reassessment taking place in Europe of relations with China, um, which have progressively become less cooperative, more tense across a whole range of, of topics. And that's partly connected to what's happening inside Europe, um, the sense that there are certain vulnerabilities which have to be closed related to things like foreign direct investment by Chinese-owned entities, um, access to strategic raw materials, um, the question of intellectual property rights, particularly intellectual property which has some military or security dimension. So there is a general sense in Europe that more attention needs to be paid to consolidating, if you like, um, the Western group. Um, the other factor which I guess will have an important impact is the degree to which Russia and China move closer together. This is something which is, which is happening and has happened over a number of years. But the more closely China and Russia cooperate with each other, uh, the more suspicion there will be in Europe about China's intentions and the future trajectory of relations. Let's get back to the war in Ukraine. There are voices that the war can uh, cause uh, uncontrolled uh, spread of arms uh, in Europe, uh, in Asia, in the world. Well, of course, that's something which is fairly standard, if you like, for war-torn regions. It's very difficult to maintain inventory control, for example, over small um, and light weapons which are easily carried. Um, and in the early stages of the war, these weapons were very widely distributed to the Ukrainian population as part of the self-defense. Um, so certainly couldn't exclude that. Uh, when it comes to heavier weapons, it's probably less likely that there would be uncontrolled spread. Um, but when it comes to small arms and light weapons, this is absolutely a risk. And uh, what with those old weapons, old Soviet era 
weapons. Uh, they are once again in use, uh, both in Ukraine and in Russia. Russia is uh, reviving its uh, old arsenal that was mostly uh, forgotten somewhere in, in the storage. Uh, can you say something about, about the Soviet era equipment? Yeah, it's been very interesting to see how that's happened. Um, uh, in, in fact, it's a demonstration that Russia never seems to throw anything away. Um, for example, after the end of the Cold War, there were huge reductions in weapon stockpiles in Western countries. And our assumption is that when these are no longer of value, they are destroyed. But we're seeing now systems which we thought would never once again emerge from storage, like, for example, the short-range missiles, the Tochka, actually being used on the battlefield. So it seems that Russia has retained in storage significant quantities of these Soviet-era weapons. Um, and perhaps as the stockpiles of more modern weapons are being used up, these older weapons are coming out of retirement. Um, so this is an interesting feature of the war, that a lot of old equipment that we thought had been eliminated is now suddenly coming out of warehouses. But it's not the case in Europe. I think a lot of this was genuinely eliminated and destroyed, and um, not only the systems, but also the industrial capacity to manufacture the systems. This is more consistent with how Western countries see the efficient use of resources. Um, and this is a potential problem. We see a, um, a requirement in European countries to restore their military capability, but the industrial base will take some time to regenerate. So um, this is a problem which we need to think about. Meantime, Russia is fully capable of reorientating its industry towards war. Perhaps. Um, you see some indications of that in presidential decisions and decrees, which are essentially instructing companies that they have to um, retool their facilities and reorientate their thinking to war production. Um, but Russia is under a set of heavy and escalating sanctions. Um, it has its own capacity limitations, uh, so we'll see to what extent it's possible to recreate a command economy. Well, let's touch on uh, last subject, Zaporizhia Energodar nuclear plant. How big is a risk? Um, well, there is a risk, uh, and of course, it's a it's a unique and and concerning set of circumstances. There are rules and regulations for nuclear safety and cons and security, but they were not um, written for wartime conditions. When people were thinking about nuclear safety and security, they didn't have in mind uh, a power plant being used in an instrumental way in a conflict, in the way that Russia is using the power plant in Ukraine by stationing forces there and actually using it as a kind of protected area for launching attacks. Um, at the same time, we probably shouldn't exaggerate the risk. Um, you know, we've seen that even in a situation where a nuclear reactor melts down more or less completely, as happened in Fukushima, um, the actual radiation release was very limited. The reactor vessels are very strong pieces of equipment which take some uh, breaking. Um, now, of course, if they're under sustained attack by military weapons, this is one thing, but still, um, it's very difficult to see why anybody would do that. Um, so in order for there to be a major release, you would not only have to have the reactor meltdown, you would also have to have a fracturing of the pressure vessel, and then you would have to have the loss of containment in the overarching building. So, yes, it's a serious concern, um, but we shouldn't exaggerate the potential. Um, an interesting development has been the agreement to deploy the international team there, led by the IAEA, including the Director General, in fact. Uh, this is interesting. It's very important for the IAEA to understand exactly what's happening at the plant. 
what are the conditions there in terms of the energy supply are the backup generators working is there a sufficient supply of fuel all of these questions it's very important for us to understand um, but perhaps even more than that the political signaling has been interesting um, Russia's decision to allow the international team to arrive came I think one day after China said this situation is too dangerous to allow to get out of control so it suggests that Russia does listen closely to China and that China actually has more influence than they've led us to believe on Russian thinking yesterday or the day before uh, we heard about the death of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, he also uh, had some responsibility for nuclear threats in uh, in uh, Europe and uh, also r modern Russia, today's Russia, used the same Chernobyl plant uh, during the first uh, stage of the war. Uh, well, of course, not the same plant. The design of the Chernobyl reactors was very different from the design of the reactors we're talking about now. Um, and the safety concerns around Chernobyl were very, very serious because there was no containment building. Um, it was an entirely different design of reactor. So, um, but of course, the disaster at Chernobyl was, a, to a certain extent, a turning point in Mr. Gorbachev's thinking. Um, it really, I mean, he knew it already, but it brought home to him very dramatically how serious the problems in the Soviet Union were. Um, so Chernobyl, to that extent um, played an important role in changing the European security environment. Um, Mr. Gorbachev was a good friend of Cipri. He came here a number of times um, and uh, in the period immediately in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, this is a place where we had many conversations with him about particularly German unification and the implications. So. At a personal level, of course, it was sad to see his loss. But the reactions to his loss have been very different in different parts of Europe. Uh, Lithuanians don't consider him a hero. That's very true, and you see that reflected very much in public statements and certainly on social media. Um, uh, Lithuania, not only Lithuania, also um, other parts of Central and Eastern Europe had, had a very different reaction to his death from uh, countries further to the west. Uh, but I was actually talking about uh, seizing of uh, Chernobyl nuclear plant in the first uh, first days of uh, war. Yes, that happened. Um, partly, I suppose, for geographical reasons. This was one of the areas through which Russia planned to make its uh, attack on Ukraine, not only from the east, but also from the north. Um, and so that region was a pathway, if you like, for for Russian troops to enter, but um, the Chernobyl reactor has been out of commission for a very long time. Is it even possible for Ukraine to win this war and uh, when will it end? Uh, this of course depends on your definition of win. Um, um, from a Ukrainian point of view at the moment the position is still that they insist on recovery of sovereign control of all Ukrainian territory and this includes Crimea. So the military problem of how to expel Russian forces from all of Ukraine's territory is a very difficult one to solve. Um, so I think we can anticipate that this is a protracted conflict. This is not something which is going to be over in weeks or months. This was The Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7pm. 